All right. Welcome, everyone. I'm joined by historian Dale Allison to talk about his new book, Encountering Mystery. Dale Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here, Emerson. So I'm sure most of our listeners are already familiar with you and your work, but for those who are just meeting you for the first time, would you mind introducing yourself a bit? Well, the book we're going to talk about, Encountering Mystery, is not really what I'm known for. I'm primarily uh, an historian of early Christianity and, and early Judaism. So my uh, work has focused primarily on the historical Jesus, uh, certain New Testament texts, and several Second Temple uh, Jewish texts. But occasionally I do something else um, because I get bored by staying in the past and just doing history. So this this book is just another one of my my interests. Yeah. So you're usually doing, you know, that kind of uh, early Christianity historical work, but sometimes you uh, put on your Fox Mulder hat and then start. Um, <laughs> actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the X-Files or not, but. Um, uh, so I know what it is and I do think it changed the culture. But I've never seen an episode. <laughs> uh, it's a great show. Um, I just wanted to compliment you, though, because in your work, you've done a pretty remarkable job building up trust with um, atheists and agnostics. You know, I mean, just in our little secret <laughs> uh, group chats and everything, everyone uh, has nothing but positive things to say about you. You know, people who are interested in uh, early Christianity and the resurrection. Um, I guess I the thing I hear most often is that you're just very honest and I think that's because you're not really engaged in apologetics in the sense of we already know what the right answer is. Let's just defend it as best we can. Like, it seems like you're really just trying to figure out the way the world is and it comes through in your work. So, um, well, thank you. Those are kind things to say. But um, I find the world to be an extremely confusing place. I think it's empirically confusing. Religiously, it's confusing. Philosophically, it's confusing. Scientifically, this place is insane. Uh, you, you told me that you are married to a physicist. Is that right? A nuclear engineer. Oh, a nuclear engineer. Well, I'm sure this person knows all about the spookiness at the bottom of all this, which is completely unintelligible. Uh, so, you know, I what am I supposed to say? I do my best, but I'm just groping in the dark. And I know I must be wrong about all sorts of things. And I may be wrong about everything. So humility seems to me to be uh, the, the word of the day. And uh, the other thing is that it's just so much fun. If you don't have all the answers ahead of time, and you're trying to figure something out, then you uh, that's fun. If you already know the answer, then you're just doing confirmation bias all the time and it gets very boring and you you, you should feel guilty about it, I would think. Yeah, and it's definitely not restricted to the, um, you know, Christian apologist camp. Plenty of skeptics and atheists have kind of, you know, come to certain views to their own satisfaction where they're like, look, I already know what the right answer is. And pretty much no matter what you tell me, I'm just immediately going to assume that that can't be right because it's in conflict with like my current ontology. So <laughs> it, can't, it can't possibly be what it seems like. Yeah. So one of the problems with that, at least for me, is that I'm aware that in human history, we've had some people that are really, really smart, right? People like Einstein or Pascal or Augustine or Plato or Aristotle, you know, you can come up with this name of of front rank thinkers. And then you ask yourself, if you put them in a room, what would they agree on? Well, they would disagree on an awful lot. And they are all way smarter than I am. So the possibility that I've thought myself into the truth just seems to me to be remotely small. I have to be wrong about all sorts of things, just as Aristotle uh, was wrong and uh, Augustine was wrong and, and, and so on. So, uh, Thinking of myself once in a while, of being in a room with those people, uh, makes me think I shouldn't trust my judgment. The other thing is that I don't have the same opinions now that I had 20, 30, 40 years ago. That means that I change my mind sometime. And um, wow, if you do that, you can't take yourself too seriously, right? Yeah, I've... I can't say that I've changed my mind over the last 20 or 30 years. <laughs> I've like, I've definitely changed my mind a lot, like just even in my adult life. And it does kind of create this humility because I would like back when I was more of like a reductive materialist and like a down the line skeptic, I was so, so certain 
that mm-hmm. I, you know, was 21 or 22 and had everything like exactly figured out. And now I, I just feel a lot more agnostic about everything. And, you know, like the stuff you're talking about in this book, I just don't see any really great reason to rule it out without investigating it, which is kind of one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on. There are sort of three main reasons I wanted to have you on. But okay. one of them is just that it's hard to talk about some of the things that are in your book. And I think that it should be destigmatized and people should be more open and mm-hmm. honest about it. Secondly, I don't think we know these things are like wrong a priori, like they warrant investigation. Um, (laughs) We like we don't know ahead of time what the right answer is. And thirdly, I just have this suspicion, I guess, or maybe like inclination to think that the natural world is going to turn out much, much weirder than most people think it's going to turn out. Don't you think it already has? If if you actually sit there and talk to uh, some subatomic physicist and say, what What are you doing? What does this mean? What is What is the universe made of? They They can't tell you. Mm-hmm. They uh, They can say, well, you know, I can write equations about what I see in a bubble chamber, but they can't tell you metaphysically or ontologically how, how to conceptualize these things. So we're already there. The world is truly, truly weird. Um, one of my academic heroes, a man named Arthur Kessler, wrote a book, I think it was in the 1960s, where he spoke about the perversity of physics. And I like that compared to 19th century uh, materialism, uh, modern physics is perverse, right? It doesn't make sense. And um, I suppose now we can we can grow up with it. We can go to school. We can be taught quantum mechanics from an early age. But it is truly weird. And uh I personally am inclined to think it probably tells us something about the limitations of human knowledge. Maybe we will never get our minds around some of these things because they just weren't evolved in order to 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 do that sort of task. Maybe some some tasks are above us and we're not potentially omniscient. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a safe bet. Um, I guess there's this statistic from uh, early on in your book that can illustrate one of those reasons I wanted to have you on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the case of the uh, the researchers in Sweden in the 1990s who oh, were yeah. studying, <laughs> they were studying bereavement and they interviewed 50 people who uh, had recently lost a spouse and they said, you know, have you ever encountered your dead loved one? And only one of them said yes <laughs> of the 50. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, would you mind uh, telling... Uh, how that ended. So um, you're right. One of those uh, who was interviewed said, yes, I'm in touch with my dead husband. And they didn't pay much attention to her because I guess she was into mediums and, you know, that sort of thing. But they thought that that was really low given the anecdotal evidence that they had heard. So they were really uh, shocked. And so they went back to the drawing board and they talked to each other and they said, maybe we simply approach this incorrectly. And so they went back And uh, they talked to these same people. And before asking them what they had experienced or not experienced, they had a little preface which said, you know, people who uh, think they've been in contact with a dead spouse aren't mentally ill. And it's a normal part of mourning to feel the presence of a dead loved one or to hear a voice uh, from the beyond and so on. So they, they prefaced their questions with, if you say yes, we don't think you're crazy. And as soon as they did that, it went to half of them. I mean, it went from one to 25. Statistically, that is unbelievable, right? And so I love I love that example because it, it speaks to the fact that we often are surrounded by a social censorship that we're just not aware of. Uh, but since I've written this book and since I've been speaking on its subject for years, I know that this is everywhere. This is not just in religious circles. I mean, it's not just in secular circles. It's also in religious circles. And many times people will come up to me and they'll confide stories and they are frequently prefaced with, I only told my husband or I never told anyone or I only told, you know, one or two people. So things happen and people keep them in. And um, I think because of this social censorship, we really don't have a sense of how common some experiences are because people just don't um, report them. There's another incident in the book that uh, I like to bring up. I was in Maine 
um, in our farmhouse a number of years ago. My daughter was sleeping in another room and she came uh, to see me in the morning and she told me about something that had happened to her that night and it was some sort of truly bizarre nightmare which she thought was was more than a nightmare and it really doesn't matter what what it was metaphysically but she sensed uh, these dark uh, uh, brooding forces and saw these weird uh, beings that were malevolent and hated her and were making fun of her and jumped on the bed and she was genuinely terrified and she uh, she told me, I think it was just last year, that she had suffered uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome for 10 years from this nightmare, whatever it was. But the thing that I remember is she came and she told me right after it happened, right after it happened, because she knew I was open-minded. And then she said, Daddy, don't tell anyone because they'll think I'm crazy. And I've always thought that's really sad because you are not crazy. You are a perfectly smart, intelligent, well-adjusted person. You're rational. You yourself are trying to figure out what the heck was that. Uh, she didn't know what it was. She wasn't like a true believer who knew that these were, you know, demons from hell or or some. She had no idea what this was, but it really did happen to her. And uh, since then, she's gone through the literature and discovered that other people have this experience, whatever it is. But my point is that people keep these things to themselves way more often than that, than we realize, which is why we have a false perception of the world. Many of us have a false perception of the world. Yeah, we, we have a false perception of what the data even are, because we think that like maybe these things happen on the fringes. But like, in fact, a lot of these things are, you know, really common. I mean, I've kept things to myself, like just weird things that have happened to me because for the same reason, like you just... Don't want to like be made fun of, and uh, like at least for one or two of these experiences, it wasn't just a weird thing. It was something that had some emotional significance. Um, uh -huh. You know, not not usually positive. By the way, it wasn't like a <laughs> wonderful spiritual experience. Like it was more like what um, you were talking about. But you know, it's like yeah, you don't want people to think that you're crazy or like have schizophrenia or something, or they don't want to because they're going to immediately put something yeah. like shoehorn it into a category, and um. Like you said, it's not just uh, like skeptics who do this, where they you know try to shoehorn it into some particular category that works for them. But like Christians do this too. Like, um, yeah. you know, it's always demons. You know, it's always like uh, some kind of it, it has to fit into their current ontology. But yeah, yeah. So Christians uh, have this view of the world, which is there are human beings and animals, then there are gods, angels, and demons. And uh, okay, fine, but. Um, this notion that there are angels and demons and, and then God seems to me to be insufficient. It doesn't fit the facts. There are so many things that you can't attribute to angels or demons, even if you believe in angels or, or, or demons. Anyway, um, you know, there is a tradition of skepticism in uh, mainstream Protestantism, which goes back to the Reformation. And what happened is Protestants showed up on the scene and they had to discredit Roman Catholicism, but Roman Catholicism was full of miracles, and the Catholics viewed their miracles as confirming their version of Christianity. So the Reformers very quickly had to develop methods of discrediting all these miracle stories. And so what happened is that the early Protestants said, well, the stories in the Bible all happened, the miracles in the Bible are true, but nothing else has uh, happened that's a true miracle since the uh, New Testament times. And uh, I actually think you could trace the influence of that into secular thinkers such as Hume. That is, I think Hume in part inherits this cessationist tradition because the Protestants had already taught everybody, even before the Deists and the Enlightenment, how to discredit stories, how to say, well, that didn't happen, or you were hallucinating, or whatever. Now, the Protestants also had the devil, which the Enlightenment finally threw out, but they had all the other strategies uh, for discrediting people and, and stories. So uh, the, the skeptical tradition in the modern world, I think, in part, is birthed by the, the Reformation, actually. So it has a religious origin, as well as, you know, the usual story, human, the Enlightenment, etc. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I was I was really surprised hearing some of those stories from you because I'm just not really familiar with like the liberal Protestant side of things. Oh, uh-huh. like just hearing about I don't know, hearing you recount some stories, I guess, just in other interviews or like in the book, it was just really surprising to me. Like there are certain denominations that they seem like atheists who go to church, basically. Like they <laughs> Well, I got to be real careful here because you're talking about some of my good friends and some of my colleagues here at school. Mm-hmm. But yes, I think that uh, there is a sort of pragmatic flat earthism uh, in a number of churches that that I know of, and maybe people behind the scenes will you know say something about a prayer being answered or, or whatever. But the sermons and the Sunday school lessons and ev- everything public is pretty much uh, do-gooder time with religious language uh, thrown on top of it. So, yeah, I mean, the, look, there's a in let's say mainstream German theology, uh, miracles are already out in the 19th century, right? Kant doesn't believe in them. Hegel doesn't believe in them. Schleiermacher doesn't believe in them. And uh, so nobody else is respectable is going to believe in them uh, who's a German academic after after those folks are, are around. But that then um, sort of works its way out uh, over into other parts of Europe and into the American churches and, and so on. So um, it, it then takes two forms. One is cessationism, where you have really conservative people who think all those miracles happened back there in the Bible, uh, but nothing since. And then the more liberals, the churches, which view the miracles as stories, and we look for the the moral of the story, kind of like a fairy tale. You know, you don't think it happened. Uh I, I actually think that's kind of boring. I think the world's more interesting than that, and I think we uh, haven't figured it out. And uh, I don't think the early Protestants were right just to say, you know what, all this Catholic stuff is garbage, and let's just throw it out. We don't even have to examine it or or look at it. Uh, that seems a mistake to me. Um, part of the problem here. Is a, is a presupposition which I don't share with my most of my Christian uh, compatriots. So for them, the question of miracles is a question of Christian truth. That is, if Jesus did miracles, then Christianity is true. Or if Jesus didn't do miracles, then Christianity is, is false. But if you know anything about the paranormal, or if you know anything about other religions, for example, you know that miracle stories and strange events and weird things uh, are claimed by by everybody. So to to look at, let's say, the Gospels and say, well, Jesus heals people or he casts out demons or he's clairvoyant or occasionally he tells the future. My view uh, of that is, well, who doesn't do those things, a- at least in the history of religions, right? Who doesn't do those things? So um, for, for me, I don't have uh, the theological weight uh, on these questions that some people do, but I also don't have the dismissive attitude that so many people do, which is we don't have to think about it. Just what does the fairy tale mean? I I think it's really interesting to look at stories and say, well, is it possible that weird thing really happened? Maybe it did. Let's yeah. think about it. What's yeah. the nature of the world? Yeah, because it, it's not just you know like I, I keep alluding to. It's not just skeptics and um, you know materialists and really conservative naturalists who would you know kind of resist most of the stories and you know topics in this book. Like plenty of Christians would too, because they have a particular worldview that it, it you know if you're talking about like uh, perceiving dead loved ones, like to go back to the um, uh-huh. Swed- the Swedish researcher example, mm-hmm. it's like which just to loop back around to that in case people missed it it went from two percent saying they had to 50 percent saying they had once they got reassurance like once they had Uh the reassurance of like you're not crazy by the way um this is a common part of the grieving process you know yeah uh, grieving process so um half of them felt the presence of their dead loved ones and a third of them like perceived them more directly Uh um, you know like they saw them or something so the thing is like it's not just uh people on my side of the fence who would like immediately be suspicious of that it's like you know my uh like i'm pretty sure i mean i can't predict exactly like what my parents would think but you know like my like protestant uh mom i'm pretty sure would not be okay with the idea that someone really saw 
you know, their deceased uh-huh. loved one. Um, you know, like she would want to explain that as like a hallucination or maybe even like mm-hmm. a demon or something, because you're supposed to be in heaven or hell, you know, like once you die, like you, you're not supposed to be back here in any capacity. <laughs> so like yeah. there are plenty, there are many sources of skepticism, but, um, you know, just setting the question of like interpretation aside and like how we explain them, it is a fact that people are having these experiences and they're actually really common. So it's interesting yeah. that this stuff is happening to people. And like you mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people are self-censoring. You know, they're not being honest, like out of fear, and they're not sharing yeah. these really fascinating and unusual experiences they've had. So so let me let me go back to the ghost thing, although ghost mm-hmm. is not the right word, because uh, ghost in our time and place usually conjures up uh, something that you can see through and is ethereal and not really there. Actually, most uh, encounters with dead people or ostensible uh, encounters are not like that at all. They're much more robust and seemingly real. But the Protestants came along, and this goes back to what I said earlier, and is connected to cessationism and miracles. The Protestants came along and they said, "Uh uh-oh, the Catholics had purgatory. And so when people saw ghosts, they could do something with them. They could interpret them. They didn't just say, well, you were just seeing things or you're lying or, or whatever. But Protestants believe that when you die, you went to hell, which was under the world or some other place, or you went to heaven, which was not here. So if you're dead, you're not here. So what happens is in Protestant countries, people are still seeing ghosts, but they're not reporting them anymore. And I have found several uh, early Protestants boasting that nobody sees ghosts anymore. And I think it's hysterical because they are. It's just they're not saying so because people are going to say you're being tricked by the devil or you're hallucinating or you're mentally ill or, or something like that. So that's a case where Uh, you can see censorship in action. People are having an experience. Now, first of all, just leave open what the interpretation is, right? What is the interpretation? Okay, so the Catholics, they plug it into purgatory. Maybe that's not right. But the Protestants come along and they just deny the experience. That is wrong, all right? That's just wrong because we know that people do have these experiences. So we're still living with the the censorship that goes way back to the 16th century in my view you know i had a friend in uh eighth grade i think i mean it was it was in middle school but his dad passed away and um he you know came downstairs one night and his dad was just sitting there in his favorite chair (laughs) like just you know it, it wasn't like in his mind's eye or like you said kind of ethereal or transparent it was just as concrete as yeah you and me and he ran out the front door, you know, into the snow. Like, so I mean, he didn't like wake up in his bed or something like he, <laughs> ran, he ran out the front door into the foot deep snow. And, um, you know, I remember like questioning him about it and like kind of interrogating him almost because, uh-huh. you know, as a good young Christian, I was just like, well, that couldn't have been like, I mean, that must've been like a, a demon or a hallucination or something because your dad, I mean, I'm not going to say it, but your dad's in hell, but, <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> but he's certainly not here. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, those things do happen to people. And then, you know, it's just, there, there are so many different sources of skepticism here that, yeah, they, they kind of end up self-censoring. Yeah. Um, by the way, this is one of the things that I can't get across to people when I talk about visions. So I've written a lot on visions and um, Christian apologists, I, I think for the most part, have shallow, uninformed views about visions. Visions are frequently, like your friend's vision, really concrete. And you can't even tell the difference between uh, what you're seeing and, and seeing somebody who's supposedly really there. Um, and in fact, one of the old tropes in a lot of ghost stories is that you don't know the person is dead until the person just ceases to to be there, right? Just pops out, kind of like Jesus in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. He's there, pops in, and he pops out. He's real while he's there. Uh, that That is actually more common than, a, than an old transparent ghost story. Yeah, and, you know, I was kind of laughing as I read the book because I've had similar experiences as you where people will 
they'll suddenly like they'll get the idea that you're cool <laughs> and then they'll open up because and they'll share some oh, yeah. wild uh-huh. stories because you're not going to make fun of them or dismiss it immediately or you know you're also not listening with you put it in the book uh, the patronizing acceptance of a psychotherapist talking to a psychotic patient yeah. <laughs> um, so like they kind of uh-huh. get the sense that you're cool and then you'll hear some crazy stuff from people who are like otherwise sober normal rational uh-huh. people and they're just like yeah, they don't go around broadcasting this because they know how it sounds. But once they get the sense that, you know, you're you're actually kind of open about what they're talking about, you'll hear some crazy stuff from people who you thought you knew and who you thought were, yeah. you know, not yeah. like that. And uh, it, pastors often uh, are of one, one of two types. There are the mm-hmm. pastors who get the stories and there are the pastors that don't get the stories. And the pastors who don't get the stories apparently communicate somehow that they're not really going to take you seriously if they hear the story. So somehow that gets communicated uh, to people. But there's that pastor who said he's some, a woman tried to tell him something. He said, maybe it's menopause. (laughs) Well, I don't know his name. Yeah. That was in the 1940s. Yeah. That was terrible. Um, That's a really fascinating story because that is about a woman who had this totally overwhelming bizarre experience that was the most important thing that ever happened to her. And she tried to share it with a pastor who said menopause. And then she shared it with a Jungian therapist who said, now don't pay any attention. You can't trust it. But she never got away from it. And she herself uh, only found encouragement by reading books by mystics, right? She discovered the mystics and and her experience uh, resembled theirs. So she knew she wasn't alone. But what's so interesting about her is that after the pastor and the therapist, she never told anyone again. She didn't even tell her family. And then later in life, 50 years later, she is going to have an operation and she thinks she might die. So she starts to write her memoirs for her family. And that's when she tells the story. So they don't know this story, which she says is the most important thing that happened to her. They don't know it till she writes it down when she thinks she's dying. Uh, again, that's just amazing, isn't it? These uh, things yeah. can happen and people can keep them. Yeah, keep Look, I, I, again, I want to say this. Uh, I want to stress this. How many times do I hear that was the most important thing that happened to me and I didn't tell anybody or it was really, really important, foundational for my life or whatever, and I didn't tell anybody all the time? Yeah, I mean, that's why I think it's important to destigmatize some of these things. Like I said, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is to try to encourage openness just about what's happening to people. Um, you know, like something like taste. What, what does that stand for again? It's like the, the thing with the scientists who... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is that? Transcendent? Anyway, yeah, it's yeah. a website for scientists mm-hmm. who can share their... Um, transcendent religious paranormal experiences without the sense uh without a sense of being um censored for it so um you can go to the site it's still up although it's not open anymore so it's not taking new contributions but these people submit their stories anonymously mm-hmm. and they do so because they feel that it, their careers might be in jeopardy if people knew uh, their stories and that's really, really sad because these are intelligent, highly educated people. They're the, the best educated people in our society now, and they have these experiences, and then they can't they can't say, yeah, I had this experience. They have to go to some website and upload it and, and yeah. do it all in secret. Yeah. So um, let, me, let me also tell you that... Um, one of the main reasons for this, for me writing the book, is uh, is why you're interviewing me. Um, I I really uh, don't like the stigma that is associated with um, the things I write about in in the book, and I think part of this comes from my immediate family experience. So my wife has had visions. I've ostensibly seen a dead person. I've had a dead person talk to me. Uh, And all three of my children have experiences 
several multiple experiences that are way weirder than what I just said my wife and I have. So I have this little group of five people. We are all well-educated, highly intelligent, successful, functional. There's not an ounce of mental illness here in this household. Um, but there are many people who, if they heard these stories, would just say, you're nuts or you're lying or you made this up or you hallucinated. These are the people I know best. And I've talked to them right after they've had these experiences. So I have, have some sense of what's gone on with my own family. And I resent the hell out of people uh, who look at, at people like us and say, well, you're nuts or you're schizophrenic or you know, maybe you need some drugs or, or whatever, or maybe you're on drugs. That's just not true. We're just normal, ordinary people going about our lives. We didn't seek these things. They just happened to us. And that's the way the world is. And you're you're the problem, Buster. You're the problem <laughs> if you think there's something wrong here. Probably with you, not us. I mean, I guess I would just ask skeptics, like, you you have to know by now, if you've made it this far in the interview, you have to know that people are self-censoring. Like, you know, that's that's part of why I brought up the taste thing, where there are, um, that's just an acronym, by the way. It's for, you know, these scientists who are anonymously submitting their experiences and they're checked out by the guy who ran the website to make sure that they're real people and, and they are who they say they are and everything. But other than that, it's anonymous. Um, and then, you know, given what Dr. Allison just said, so like you, you have to know that people are self-censoring to a pretty amazing extent. And I would just want to ask skeptics, like, is this really the influence you want to have on the world? Like, <laughs> you know, if you want to, you know, isn't it great that people were afraid to share things that happened to them because of me? Like, is that really <laughs> the impression that you want to have on the world before you die? And it's like, you know, there are skeptic friendly interpretations of at least some of the things that you know, that we'd talk about. And it's a fact that people have the experiences and it's a fact that they want to understand them. And it's a fact that they feel like they can't talk about them. And that's in part because of, of you guys. So like, you know, you should reflect on the effect you're having on the world and think, is that really what you want to do? Yeah. So I, I do think, uh, that it would be helpful if people could separate experience from interpretation. Now, you know, this gets into philosophical problems and there's no experience at all, I suppose, without interpretation of some sort. But you know what I mean, people who have an experience and then they say, well, that's Satan, for example. And that is a category that they're putting on the experience. I think it's possible to some extent to look at a bunch of people who are reporting similar things and to get a sense of what a common experience is that's underlying this, even if the interpretations differ, and then to sit back and ask, what do we, we make of this? You can set the, um, the question of agency aside and just look at the phenomenological uh, facts. And um, I think you also have to learn that um, you can have gaps without a god of the gaps if you know what i mean you you know every time you have something that's inexplicable you don't have to invoke divine agency that actually makes no sense to me right for me the problem is are there any occasions in which you can invoke divine agency that's a that's a really difficult one i think the world is full of things we don't understand and um most of my uh, unusual or odd experiences are not particularly religious, and uh, I don't know how to put them in a religious framework, for example. So um, just just for one example, uh, I don't know what your audience will think of me, but I think that uh, clairvoyance is a real phenomenon. Now, let's just say for the purpose of discussion, it is a real phenomenon. Um, well, I know that in Christian history, when people have had clairvoyant experiences, they've said, oh, God told me, or they've said, my guardian angel told me, or something like that. But you can have clairvoyant experiences without coming up with an explanation. And I have no explanation for them. I just say, I think sometimes people know what's going on elsewhere. And I say, I don't understand that. And that's it. I, I think you can do that with a lot more things than people uh Imagine, and again, I think we're living in part with um, 
our religious past where everything gets a theological interpretation. So you become allergic to the thing itself, right? Because you're allergic to the theological interpretation, but you can separate theological interpretation often from underlying experiences. One of the things I do in the book is I say, look at look at this particular experience, which you can interpret in Christian terms, but this also appears to happen to people outside our tradition, and they give it a different reading, right? Well, that happens for thing after thing, yeah. which again means the question of agency is, is can be debated uh, and is not identical to the question of, does this thing happen to people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because I think people are pretty bin- binary in their approach to this, where they think like, well, there are so many theists and, you know, Christians and Muslims who have this particular interpretation of like this particular phenomenon. So I have to kind of dispute the phenomenon as opposed to yeah. finding some kind of middle way where it's like, well, maybe that is happening, but it just doesn't work the way they think it works. You know, like, I mean, that's already how I feel about some of the things that, um, that Christians have talked about. Uh, and I don't see why that should be off limits to an atheist or a theist, you know, like different sections of theists, you know, can, yeah, as uh-huh. you've pointed out, like be very skeptical, but a lot of people don't want these things to be destigmatized <laughs> because they, uh, they've already decided that none of it's real anyway, and they don't want people to spread falsehoods and, um, you know, yeah. uh, like silly claims or something. And, you know, nothing's ever going to convince them, um, you know, this sort of group of people who are, who call themselves skeptics or part of the skeptic community. Look, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to talk about any particular person, but it seems to me that that's just the opposite of a very conservative religious view, or I mean, I'm sorry, it's the analog of a very yeah, conservative yeah. religious view where you have everything, uh, in, in place. Um, I just, I just, I don't see any need for that sort of dogmatism. It seems unwise and unprudent to, or imprudent to, um, to, to approach things like that. I, so I'm supposed to be an expert in my own field of study, right? Which is uh, historical Jesus, early Christianity, and so on. But I've changed my mind about things. And I have some sense at this point in my life of how little I know. And it would be ridiculous to be dogmatic, even on subjects that I've spent my lifetime studying. So on other subjects that I haven't spent my life studying, like religious experience or the the nature of God or whatever, is there an afterlife? The idea that I should be dogmatic uh, about these things doesn't make, uh, it just makes no sense at all. Um, It it also... Okay, so let me try something. Let's see how open-minded you are, all right? <laughs> okay, so, uh, and, and again, I don't expect, there are very few people who are going to even understand what I'm doing here, but I'll try mm-hmm. it. So, um, in the New Testament, there's a story that Jesus went up on a mountain and he glowed, all right? Mm-hmm. The so-called transfiguration episode. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that if you look at Roman Catholic canonization proceedings, you will discover that lots of people have claimed to see certain saints glow, right? Mother uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, she she glowed, for example. Uh, stories, I don't know if they're early enough, but, you know, Francis of Assisi. Okay, so I know that we have all these stories. I also know that we have lots of stories from first-hand witnesses. Okay, so did they all hallucinate? Did they all misperceive? Okay, that's possible. But then what do I do with this? So I have um, a member of my immediate family who is a Buddhist, And in 2019, he had a um, meeting with three other people with one of these uh, Ancient of Days uh, Tibetan uh, holy men, right? One of the 90-year-old who came over from Tibet when the communists took over and so on. So there's a a translator, and they're asking questions in English, and they're being answered in Tibetan. So my son tells me, and I, I have this in an email we've talked about. He says that at some point, this guy starts glowing. 
Now, my son is rational, and he's, he said he looked in the, out the window, you know, is the sun coming through here? It's snowing outside. Is there some reflection on the snow, right? He kept looking, trying to figure out what the heck this is. And he finally decided after a little while, he said, I think this guy is glowing, <laughs> right? Then after they left, he said that they debriefed and all four of them claimed that they saw this guy glowing. Okay, so here's me. What do I do with this? I don't say, well, I'm a Christian and only Jesus glows. So you're lying, right? <laughs> and I don't say I, ha I have a full understanding of the world. So I know that people don't glow. So you all are, I don't know, you're lying for some other reason or you're all hallucinating. My response is to say, this is really interesting. I wonder what happened. And then the presupposition behind that is, well, who knows? Maybe for reasons I don't know. Sometimes people glow. Okay? So that's how open-minded I am. And it doesn't work for anybody because that's not a traditional Christian answer, which is Jesus glowed. And we just want him to glow, or at least only people who believe in him to glow. Right? Mm -hmm. Or... Nobody glows. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's stupid. Of course, people hallucinate and they, they you know, they misunderstand when the sun is setting behind somebody. They're really naive and stupid. My, okay, so I've interviewed my son about this, and I, I think, well, okay, maybe so. So that's my response. My response is, I don't know what happened. Maybe this happened. If it happened, I have no explanation for it. What's wrong with that? I look, I have the same exact reaction that you do. I mean, I, I actually wasn't aware that there were theological constraints there where there'd be like a, a sort of Christian motivation to deny that kind of thing. But, you know, that's a perfect example of what I think, you know, kind of leaves itself open to a kind of middle way where it's like, well, look, isn't it more likely that people just sometimes glow <laughs> as opposed to... Um, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? As opposed to, though, like, you know, all four people who saw this Buddhist guy glowing, like, oh, they're all crazy or lying or hallucinating or like, uh, you know, I, I just don't really like I take that perfectly seriously. I mean, I believe all kinds of things on the basis of the exact same kind of evidence. And it, it doesn't really contradict any background knowledge that I have. It just I'm not familiar with people glowing. But other than um, <laughs> I, uh, other than, uh, you know, you mentioned some people from from history who might have who might have glowed. And I, I thought you were going to tie it into the um, the more well-documented phenomenon of people dying or uh, people who have recently died kind of glowing. Um, and I, oh, yeah. and that seems like it's pretty, you know, uh, well attested, I guess, but like that, I don't know. I just never, um, that's the kind of thing where I don't understand why people are so down on it. Like, again, it seems like a pretty, like a perfect candidate for like, oh, that's just a part of the natural world that we don't understand yet. Like, yeah. a, like whereas some of the other stuff would require us to uh, uh, dispense with conventional wisdom to a greater extent. But this, I mean, I feel perfectly open-minded about uh, your son's testimony there. Um, when it comes to the people who, you know, some of the folks from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, especially if they're saints or something, I'm a little more inclined to think that it, they're kind of hagiographic, hey, you know, uh -huh. exaggerations that come over time. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, when it comes to people glowing at death, you know, which was apparently more common when people weren't dying in hospitals, but dying at home, um, you know, I, I don't see anything. I don't know why I wouldn't be open-minded to that. Um, that, one, that one's really, really interesting. And I've had lots of people tell me these stories about what happens at, at deathbeds. But, um just to follow up on your, your thing about hagiography. So I'm a, I'm an historian and like you, I'm much more comfortable with things that are reported now and that I can uh, interview people about now. My tendency actually is to think analogically. So if I can see something happening now, that raises the odds that maybe it happened back then. So if I read certain hagiographical stories, if I read, for example, um, Pope Gregory the Great's Discourses, Book 4, which is chuck full of miracle stories, actually most of them I look at and say, oh, yeah, that goes on today. That goes on today. I don't have any reason to distrust that. So uh, 
my tendency is, is, is again, to think, okay, if I think it happens now, then if somebody says back then it happened, well, maybe it, maybe it did, right? Uh, you can't get to those old things in the same way. But if you look at hagiographical accounts, there are many things that keep happening that are reflected today, uh, even outside of Christian or religious contexts. Uh, the hagiographical literature, for example, is full of clairvoyance. Is it full of it, right? People knowing what's going on elsewhere. But, um, you know, the Rhines, you know, I do collected all sorts of testimony to clairvoyance in the 1960s. I mean, yeah, it, so, so, so that's my tendency. And my tendency to go back to the glowing thing, which is much rarer, uh, is simply to say, well, I don't know, and I'll just over the course of the rest of my life, just collect stories and testimonies and I'll put them in the glowing file, right? And maybe someday I'll figure something out or maybe I'll just die with, you know, a hundred stories of glowing people and who knows what to do with it. But um, look, I can't prove that Jesus glowed, but I'm actually somebody who thinks, well, I don't know. If people today once in a while see holy people glowing, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, I was trained with all the reductionistic uh, ideas. How, how do you explain an event like the Transfiguration? And uh, <clears throat> I think that one possibility is that maybe people saw him glowing. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I um, We were talking about this a little bit before we started, but, um, we, you know, the subject of Joseph of Cupertino came up. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those who don't know, who that is. Would you mind uh, filling us in there? Well, he's a 17th century Roman Catholic uh, who spent his life in Italy, uh, does not seem to have been a particularly bright or intelligent person, and not really uh, a saint. But the the story is that he um, would levitate during his devotions. He would rise up off the ground and the thing that's amazing is that during his uh, canonization proceedings, which took place when tons of people who knew him were still alive, uh, the uh, Inquisitor got a testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony. Yeah, I saw Joseph you know, levitate. I saw him float off the ground. I saw him rise up a bit when he was you know, serving Eucharist or wh- whatever. Uh, it turns out there were some people who saw him uh, who converted to Catholicism after they saw him. It turns out at least one of the popes saw him and famous people in Italy. He was a big celebrity. He drew so many crowds that the Roman Catholics had to keep moving him from place to place uh, because uh, the, the cra- they couldn't uh, control the crowds. Anyway, the testimony for his levitation is uh, it's unbelievable. And... Um, if if uh, you had this testimony for anything that wasn't metanormal, nobody would even bat an eye. It would just be totally certain. Uh, they just the uh, the guy who was leading the canonization proceedings just quit. He said, "What? We don't need any more testimony. They're all saying the same thing. This is silly." And actually, the Inquisition went to observe him, and they saw him fly too, and they said, well, it must be the devil, because they they didn't like him for various reasons. So even people who didn't want to believe, or people who were his enemies said, oh, yeah, we saw him fly, but it's the devil. So uh, I find this uh, to be bizarre, and as an historian who's open-minded, I have to say, well, the testimony to this is as good as anything else we have. I mean, how often do you get you know, a hundred eyewitness uh, testimony to anything, you know, sworn to God, that kind of thing. Uh, so the the great um, the, the great uh, Reformation and Counter Reformation historian uh, Carlos Ayer has a book coming out uh, later this year. It's just called "They Flew," and it it includes. Um, his evaluation of the testimony for for Joseph, and he just says the evidence is overwhelming. Now, I will say this: uh, 
Professor Ayer is a Roman Catholic, so I don't know what he makes of this theologically, but I, I just find it hard, given who I am, to think that God enjoyed uh, raising Joseph off the ground, you know, <laughs> regularly. By the way, Joseph himself didn't like it. He reportedly asked God to stop it, and it just kept <laughs> on going. So, look, this this may truly be the best attested paranormal thing in history. It's it's completely weird. But if it happened, my my uh, evaluation would be, well, I don't know why it happened. Maybe uh, there's some latent human ability that comes to the surface once in a while if you're in really weird mental states. But I couldn't do any better than that. And that's not a theological explanation. But they sainted him because this all took place within a religious context. He was always praying and you know doing his devotions, and he was a priest and so on. So they, they tied it to um, specific Catholic doctrine. But I don't think that you have to do that. I think you could look at this and say, well, maybe this happened. If it did, this is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it, it's just so well attested that if it were literally anything else, there would not be any question about it whatsoever. But, um, you know, like you were saying earlier, the question of agency is so hard to determine yeah. in cases like this. You just kind of have to think about it and like, okay, does it make more sense that God <laughs> periodically levitates this guy for no reason that we can see? Um, or maybe some people can just do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reason that that uh, jumped out at me is because you know, it's just not that not that many people who don't shoehorn things into Christian categories or alternatively just dispute the phenomenon. Um, there aren't that many people who, you know, are even aware of this kind of middle option between skeptics and uh, religious believers. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I think the world is just going to turn out a lot stranger than people seem to expect it to, and we can't predict how that's going to go, so we have to kind of investigate it. But anyway, that as a side note, that is something I appreciate about um, about you and your work, that you're a Christian, but you don't try to shoehorn everything into Christian categories. Um, that would yeah. be, well, I can't do it. I can't honestly do it. How about that? Good grief. No, so whatever view of the world we have, most of the world escapes it, right? I, most of the world I can't comprehend or understand. I can't look. I, I I have a PhD in religion. I can't figure out religion, you know. So what's what's the hope I'm going to figure out everything else in the in the world that goes on? Uh, I I I I'm prejudiced because I have some of my own experiences. Some weird things have happened to me. Some truly weird things have happened to some people I know, and um, so it just gives me a particular view of the world. And then then one of the things I'm trying to show in this book is that people I know and have talked to aren't 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 abnormal in the sense that lots lots of people have these experiences the sorts of things that i talk about in, in the book we we can debate their interpretation uh, i i do in the book but phenomenologically most of the stuff in here i think is indisputable yeah um there was this really interesting concept that i i first heard about from you i think it was on uh, dustin crummett's channel you were talking about this like Celtic tradition about there being thin places. Oh. <laughs> I think there are like thin people as well. Yeah. Um, could you explain that? Cause that's such a fascinating idea. Well, uh, in Celtic Christianity, there is the notion that there are certain places that are thin by which they mean, if you are in this place, it's easier to run into God or to run into angels or to, to have a vision of the other world. Now, whether there's anything to that or not, I, I don't know. I personally feel better on mountains than I do anywhere else, but uh, what, what has occurred to me is that maybe some people are thinner than others. And by that, I mean everything human exists on a spectrum. There are tall people and there are short people. Um, there are people born with certain skills and so, some people who don't have those skills at all. So genetics plays a really important role in who we are, even if we don't like to think about that too much. And since everything we do uh, is connected to our brains and our brains differ from one another, it would make sense to me that some people are wired uh, to have certain experiences more often than others. I do know people who are visionaries, 
and who have visions all the time. I know other people who have never had visions. And these visionaries didn't cultivate this talent. They were just from a young age. They would, you know, see things, you know, ghosts or other people or whatever. And it doesn't matter whether they're hallucinating or what the metaphysics here is. Uh, their brains just did this, right? Or their minds just, just did this. And so... Um, I, I don't know what this is all about. I'm wired to have deja vu 10 times a year, sometimes really, really strong. And I've had it my whole life. Um, and some people have this once or twice in their in their lives. So I think everything is a spectrum. Uh, now, theologically, again, I'm some kind of a Christian. Uh, this doesn't seem fair, right? Because, you know, some people may be wired for God and others aren't wired for God or... Or, or whatever. But it does seem to me to be a reasonable conjecture that some people are, with regard to some of these experiences, uh, uh, thinner thinner than others, right? Um, again, um, a lot of weird things happen in dreams. And I know that there are people who never remember their dreams and who will even say, I never dream. The scientists say they're wrong. They do. They just don't remember, right? I remember I dream every night. I dream all the time. I actually think I'm dreaming right now. I have this weird view because uh, I, I learned when I was in college that if I would take a nap uh, and the phone rang 30 seconds later, I was already in the middle of a dream. Every time I woke up, I was in the middle of a dream. So I'm always dreaming. I just uh, I'm not not aware of it. But the point is, we're wired differently there or something has happened so that some of us remember dreams all the time and some of us don't. So I'm thinner to the world of dreams than other people are. Uh, so this, this certainly is the case with visions, for example. Uh, and it's the case with other talents, weird talents, if they exist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. But it's it's a fascinating idea, and it sounds like your your whole family is pretty thin um, in that respect. <laughs> well, so that actually is what got me to thinking about this because uh, I come from a thin family, and my wife comes from a thin family, and all three of our children are really thin, <laughs> right? One of them's too thin. I mean, it's mm. it, it's not good. It's too much stuff, right? Too much, too much stuff is happening, weird, weird stuff. Mm. So that got me to thinking maybe it's just genetic and inherited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up dreams, actually. I wanted to ask you if you have any particular insight on what dreams are. And uh, <laughs> because I just don't know, like, I've heard so many odd things and had so many weird experiences connected to dreams. And, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded to different explanations, but, um, you know, like I used to think they were just kind of meaningless nonsense, you know, and, but I, I, it's hard to square that with what I've, uh, you know, with my like accumulated experience, I guess, like with dreams and just other stories I've heard from other uh -huh. people. But there, there's one particular phenomenon I wanted to hear your opinion on of just like people who are often related having the same dream when they, when they're in the same location. Like, um, there were two brothers who, uh, I can give you the, uh, the references for these stories, if you're interested, but there was, yeah, yeah. There was uh -huh. uh, these two brothers. Um, one of them goes off to college and the other one has his girlfriend over and he and his parents say, your girlfriend can spend the night, but she has, you have to sleep in separate rooms. So uh, he sleeps in his brother's old room and he has this really terrible nightmare. It's just, it has really specific features, you know, and he's recounting what the nightmare was like. And every time he sleeps in that bed, in that room, he has the same nightmare. It picks up where it left off the last time. And, um, you know, it's just, it was really terrifying. It was, it, he said it didn't feel like a dream. It was just very unusual. And then, you know, a long time later, you know, maybe months later, he's in the car with his brother who just randomly says, you know, I used to have these terrible nightmares when I, you know, <laughs> slept at home. And then they figured out they'd had the same exact dreams, like with the same features, uh -huh. all the same, you know, all the same characters, the same things happening. And, um, uh, well, I guess, I mean, there's a lot more to that story, but I've heard a similar thing with a father and daughter. And the same thing happened to me and my brother, actually, just a couple months ago when we were in, we were hiking in Yosemite. We went there to climb uh -huh. uh, Half Dome. We had had the same dream, you know, in the same location on, on the same night. And it's just something I've heard reported over and over again. 
anyway, I was just curious uh, well, what you thought so, about that. So I'm not an expert on that. I will say that that's very common with twins, or at least it's commonly reported with twins, who actually report all sorts of weird correlations like that one knowing what the other is doing or that, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, really common. In my own life, the closest thing is that my son at some point, one of my sons, um, abandoned his bedroom because he he thought there was something like a a bad spirit or an evil presence or or whatever was there. And I went up there one night and I slept and I woke up the most terrified I had ever been in my entire life. And I I never went back to that room to sleep. It was frightening. So there are also places, that's a room that several people had occupied and they all came out and said, well, it's a haunted room. <laughs> I don't know what. So first of all, I don't deny our experiences, but the category haunted really doesn't say anything, right? I don't, I don't know what that means. I just know that uh, I had hideous uh, dreams uh, that woke me up and I was paralyzed. It was just, it was horrible. What I will say is that um, I know that there are scientists who say that dreams are not meaningful and that they're just, you know, the computer clearing the clutter of the day, that sort of thing. And I've never understood it because my dreams uh, seem to me often to be profound. They seem to me to be often like parables that I need to interpret or allegories. In fact, I've had this idea that one of the reasons we like parables uh, is because that's what we're doing at night when we dream. Our, our dreams are something like parables, and we really do have to decipher them. It is one of the weird things. I mean, why don't why doesn't the subconscious mind or whatever it is, the dreamer, just tell us? Why put things in these weird symbolic stories that we have to interpret? So I don't know what that's about, but I do often find my dreams to be profound if I sit and um, think about them. And if they're not profound, I usually look at them and say, oh, I know what that means, or that's why I dream that sort of thing. So I find them meaningful. I find them worth paying attention to. And um, I, I guess I can tell this story because uh, we're talking about unusual things. So I was in graduate school one morning, and I I uh, was in the bathroom and the, the toilet wasn't working. And so I uh, I was getting ready to take a bath. I had no clothes on. So I lifted up the back of the toilet, put it down here. And so I'm straddling the toilet, working on the, the mechanism in the back, right? And then I'm completely overcome by deja vu. Like I've done this before. And then I remembered, oh, last night I dreamed that I was naked, straddled while fixing a toilet. Okay, now that's not a romantic uh, thing. It's not religious. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've never dreamed that before or since. It's a bizarre thing to dream. I mean, this bizarre. <laughs> but I don't think he, I, that can't be a coincidence, can it? That I had a dream about that and then it happened. Mm -hmm. And I only remembered while it was happening, oh, I dreamed this. By the way, uh, that's maybe wonder, maybe some deja vu, not all, but maybe some deja vu uh, comes from the fact that things that happen resemble dreams we've had but forgotten. You know, mm -hmm. most dreams we forget, right? So what happens if we dream something and then down the road we're doing something like we were in the dream, whether the dream is predicting the future or not, doesn't even have to predict the future. What if it's just that something we're doing resembles a dream, but we can't remember the dream? Maybe we're going to have deja vu i've done this before i've felt this i've been here but i can't figure out why because i've never been here before yeah Any, anyway so uh i i i think that they're they're serious things maybe you should get somebody on who knows about dreams to talk about dreams some some expert some union or whatever no, that's really interesting because I, I, I'm not constantly afflicted by deja vu like like you are. But I've only had one really vivid experience like that, and it, it was something where that is kind of what I I landed on. Where I'm like, did I just dream this the night before? Because ah. it was, I, I dreamt that I was watching a TV show on my phone, like falling asleep, which is something I I actually do. So I I had assumed that that was just me remembering 
no, you uh-huh. were just like half asleep and, and just, you know, that's, so it wasn't really a dream. But then the next night I was doing exactly that. Um, <laughs> and then the, the weird thing is the reason like why this stuck in my head is because it was the ending of like a, you know, like a 10 episode TV show that was kind of a mystery and the mystery was kind of revealed. So it was like this really complicated ending. And like, I didn't know, I, I had no suspicion that this is how it was going to end, but I saw the ending of the show and I just, so when I saw it, you know, in real life, I was not very surprised by the ending. And I'm like, why do I already know how this is? Ending? This is like a new show I've never seen before. Uh-huh. And I realized it's because I had dreamt that I was watching the show the night before and just exactly what was happening on screen. It wasn't like the same events. It was like, mm-hmm. no, exactly like frame by frame. It was the same thing. But yeah, that was kind of what I thought too. I, th- I thought, you know, I think I dreamt this and then it happened. But, you know, it was all as I'm like drowsy and falling asleep. So I, I never could in like really great confidence put a lot of oh, okay. credence in that because it was, you know, it all happens yeah. like right on the borderline, well, you know. Yeah, I put a lot of credence in mine because I yeah. was wide awake. <laughs> <laughs> and because that was just just bizarre dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing I was most curious about with the dream uh, examples is just there seems to be something important about the locations. You know, like you said, in that room in your house, like, and I can't, like I said, no idea how that would even work, but it just seems like sometimes the location is important. Look, look so here's, here's what you and I, I guess, agree on. We should decide whether such a thing happens. That is, is it the case that sometimes people in the same place have the same dream? Right. That's it. We should decide whether that happens. And then we can step back and say, is there an explanation for this? Mm-hmm. Does this make sense? Now, given my limitations right now, I would say, well, I have no idea what the explanation for that is. Right. None whatsoever. But that shouldn't move me to interpret the uh, to deny that the event happened or that this phenomenon happens. And the other thing I don't want to do is I don't want to say, well, I have no explanation, therefore it doesn't happen, or must have been God, because, you know, we have no other explanation. Mm-hmm. That's just not a very sophisticated way of using God, it seems mm-hmm. to me. Well, I, I don't want to uh, keep you all all afternoon here. Um, I want to be sensitive to your time, but um, is there anything else you wanted to say before we uh, sign off here no i just uh i just appreciate uh, your questions i appreciate your open-mindedness and uh i'm i'm delighted to hear that i have a few people who don't hate me outside of the the christian orbit so that's nice nice to learn <laughs> um well look this book uh hang on my camera's right here <laughs> this book everybody um <laughs> go buy it now it's a it, it's a wonderful resource and it um it works as a kind of collection of like hundreds of these accounts you know these non-normal experiences that people have had um and they're not all <laughs> easy to apply the skeptical explanations to so i mean i should say though like you didn't really write this book like you know okay i'm gonna set out to convince skeptics you know no like, no 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 not at all so right. My, my first goal in writing this book is simply to report, to say, look at all these things that are happening, and too many of us don't know that they are going on. So it's just, uh, it's just news of the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is to decrease uh, the stigma that is still associated with having uh, these things that I'm talking about. And only in the third place would I say there are points which I push back a little bit on a reductive uh, or materialistic uh, account where I say I'm not really sure how how a reductive materialist uh, will deal you know deal with this material. But that's just uh, something that comes up a handful of times. That is certainly not the purpose of the book. Mm-hmm. It's to report and to destigmatize. Well, um, I hope that I can play a small small role in also doing that as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Take care.